In recent years, I've heard and read that the best burger in the Indianapolis area is that working man's friend. How many have eaten there? Oh, a lot of you. Why didn't you tell me about it? I had to read about it in the paper. Well, finally, uh, a guy over here, Eric, and I met for lunch there this week at 11.30 one day. I knew it was going to be great because when I approached it, I mean, the parking lot was packed, and the adjacent street there was lined with cars. I walked in, and it's a din of activity and noise level, not from music like in Hard Rock Cafe, but and, and just people talking. And if you don't like sitting next, like 12 inches from people, the next party over, do not go there. You have to be willing to be that close to people. It was quite a mix of people, young adults, older adults, males, females. Uh, there, there were blue-collar workers, uh, white-collar. Even Mayor Hogsett walked in while I was there to get a burger. I mean, it was just uh, quite a mix of people. It was a fascinating place to be and a great burger that I'd call a mix, a kind of a hybrid between Steak and Shake and Big Boy. How can you go wrong with that, right? Cash only, by the way. Uh, so... Aren't you glad that God gave us the need to eat? He could have done it some other way. He could have created us a way that we're just self-propagating. And when we're hungry, boop, you know, there it is. You know, we just, we just, uh, we, we're just satisfied. God satisfied me. Oh, I'm satisfied. No need for food. It doesn't work that way. So he gave us the joy of eating. And eating is best when it's shared together. National Geographic, uh, a few years ago, did a report a study, an article, where they explored about the sharing of good food together and how it's always been part of the human story. Uh, archaeologists have reported, uh, discovered a cave near Tel Aviv where they say it's the oldest hearth ever been found, several thousands of years old. They even found there a round loaf of bread that was scored, indicating it was intended to be cut, divided and shared. It's at meals that we forge relationships. It's at meals that we resolve issues. We share a laugh. We tell a compelling story. And you know, kids seem to get it because they mimic us adults by making mud pies and hosting tea parties and sharing what's in their sacks for lunch in the school cafeteria. Kind of a precursor to pitch in meals that will come later, right? Even in grief, Jill Falk is over our kitchen, and part of her responsibility is overseeing uh, bereavement meals. Already this year, she has overseen 22 uh, bereavement meals, pa families who are hurting after a f funeral service. You know, they come here, and part of their beginning steps of healing is just eating together as family and friends. When Jesus entered our realm as Emmanuel, God with us, he did not choose to use lecterns or sanctuaries, or classy marketing techniques, but instead he chose hillsides, and streets, and marketplaces, and even meals. I'm thankful for the way he did all of this. And so until the end of the year, we're going to be walking with the biographer Luke as he, as he explores Jesus' life. But God's spirit, he knew what to write. It's been preserved for us. And that's why we want to spend some time with table talk because there's so many scenes in Jesus' life where he's just at meals with people. And at these meals, he's helping us understand what the gospel is, what it looks like, 
um, uh, how we're to respond if we believe the gospel, what the gospel does. And so I want to begin with this today uh, that I believe is so true, is that the gospel begins with acceptance. Acceptance is the fruit people taste when we show love to them. Acceptance is about allowing others to simply be who they are without disapproval and without impatience. It's an invitation to be loved. We learn it even watching our kids and our grandkids. It's an amazing thing. Like, who who is your kid or your grandkid most likely to play with? Who's ever on the front sidewalk? If a kid shows up, I hope he wants to play. I'm amazed when we go to the park and my granddaughter runs over. Hey, Gramps, this is Jenna. She's my new best friend. She likes great popsicles too. That's all it takes, right? But you know, we grow in sophistication, don't we? We grow up and we get hurt and we get wounded. We have these scars and so we start closing in. We start building walls. We have a hard time really sharing our thoughts and our ideas, our struggles and our hurts. We have difficulty letting people in. I hate that about that, about us, when we lose our, that quality of childlikeness. We're called with Jesus to be, to be open. We can be with him. We can be who we are. Two things we have to keep in mind. First of all, all judgment rests with the Lord. It's not for us, any of us, to condemn. The world stands condemned already, the Bible says. Jesus himself did not come to condemn anyone. He came to save us. And I, must ex- I have to confess to you, friends, that I've had, to, I've had to go through a hard number with the Lord in learning this. Because for years, even while preaching, I, I thought that accepting somebody meant I was condoning their lives their life choices, their lifestyle, their rebellion, that if I accepted them, I was putting a stamp and approval. And that's not what acceptance is. Acceptance is merely this. We're acknowledging the intrinsic worth of a person simply based on the fact that they've been created in the image of God. And because of that one fact alone, everybody is a person of great worth. The second thing to keep in mind is that all choices rest with the individual. In other words, that free will is a gift from God. He made us creatures of volition. And we have people around our lives that we watch make bad decisions. Ha! Watch me make bad decisions. You know, thankfully, God hasn't chosen to love us based upon how wise we are. But in spite of that, he continues to love us. And so when we walk with people... Whoever those are, believers in Jesus, not believers in Jesus, part of learning the acceptance of people is also accepting them even on their worst occasions, in their worst days of their lives. God blesses unbelievers. Jesus taught this on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. He said, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies And pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Then he says, he causes his son, that means blessing, to rise on the evil and the good. And sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Don't you love that about God? 
Jesus is telling us that God is no respecter of persons as far as his blessing. Now, do those blessings vary, you know, because of a level of obedience? Probably. But the point is that he blesses all people, all the nations of the world he loves, all peoples of the world he loves. He accepts as they are to, in order to take them where he'd like to take them. But it all starts with acceptance. And if God blesses those who are rebellious and disobedient, what gives me the right to choose who I'm going to bless? See, none of us have, are, are, are worthy of living that way. As Christians, it's been hard for us to truly love and to bless people not like ourselves. And I've said this in a recent message, but I look around our church, and I, and I want to repeat it because I want you to see it too, that when I look around, there's too many people like me here. There's not a, I hope you admit that you've got issues, right? You have issues, you're a mess, I'm a mess. I mean, just, just when I think I've reached maturity, God reveals my immaturity and my gracelessness in my life. I have issues, but we need messier people here than we have. Deeper messes, people that are, that, that, that are difficult to walk with, but who desperately need Jesus just like you and I do. So, Jesus teaches us. And here's our text out of Luke chapter 7. I'll start reading with verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in the town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him, what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50 Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You judge correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head. But she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus himself is our model of acceptance. As we enter this scene, Jesus' ministry has taken off. He is growing in popularity. He has friends, but he also has enemies already. The Pharisees are among them, at least most of them. It's interesting that this Pharisee would invite him to dinner. But you notice that Jesus accepts this dinner invitation. What would this Pharisee What to do with Jesus? He's no admirer of Jesus, though he must have some regard for him because he does address him as teacher. Maybe he wanted 15 minutes of fame, like many do. This is the hot teacher of the day. 
You know, I might as well let him come in and let people know I hobnob with the right kind of people. And Jesus accepts, even though he knows that Simon isn't quite at the accepting place of his life, just curious. It's just like Jesus to accept the dinner invitation, so Simon has an opportunity to meet grace personified. Jesus also, in this scene, accepts this woman's act of devotion. So into this garden party steps this woman, probably a prostitute, known immediately to be labeled as a sinner. She's out of place here. Her appearance probably left no question as to her occupation. She comes risking herself into this kind of scene, but she's desperate. And when you're desperate, you don't care what people think. You just know you have to get to the one who people are already calling a friend of sinners. Maybe in the crowds before she's been at a distance trying to get a good look at him. You can imagine the looks of disdain toward her when she did try to come near. Nobody wanted to be near her or certainly touch her so they would be unclean. And her eyes well up with tears. And the Bible says she came with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Now, in that culture at that time, in our previous studies, you know that they reclined at the table. The feet would be around uh, where the meal was served. And uh, people would lean on their left elbow. And then free, their, their right hand would be free to partake of the meal, feet away. And uh, people in that day of means, and most Pharisees were people of means, if not all of them. And sometimes houses open into a courtyard. And that's where this dinner no doubt was. And in that culture at that time, to be on the street and know a special guest was there, it was a common thing for people to step into the courtyard and to stand around the perimeter and listen into the conversation. I remember being in northern Ghana and preaching in this little, uh, little uh, church there in one of the villages, and it was a heavily Muslim area, and uh, Muslims just crammed at the windows and doors to peer inside to see how these Christians uh, worshipped and what this white guy is doing here and, and you know, what, what they had to say. They were intrigued, and that's kind of the picture, the curiosity uh, I, I sense in this particular scene right here. And you can, you can picture the woman around the edge, and she's near Jesus. I mean, his feet are coming out, and she begins to well up with tears because she's watched him. She knows he's different than one of the teachers of the law. Perhaps she's seen a miracle. We don't know. Maybe she's, he's, she's watched him engage with people that were as sinful as she is. And she approaches him. Does he sense her drawing near? I think so. She begins to cry. She falls at her feet, at his feet. And her tears fall on his feet. And then she does something scandalous. She lowers her hair. In that day, for a woman to lower her hair was providing her husband, a married woman, with grounds for divorce. I suppose it would be our equivalent to a woman appearing topless in public. That's scandalous. And then she takes out a flask. 
Our text says a jar. Some translations use the term uh, vial or flask, even though ours says jar, something like this probably, that prostitutes at that time would wear, holding perfume to use when plying their trade. And when she poured that out, as if she was saying, I think I found a better use for this now. She's laying herself completely out. She is, she is more vulnerable now than she's ever made herself be. She risked being mocked and scorned in this setting, even rejected. But there's something about Jesus she knows she's not going to be rejected. And when Jesus calls us to himself, he calls for full vulnerability. He calls for us to lay ourselves out. And he has to be Lord over everything, over our jobs, our sexuality, our interests, our, our schooling, our decisions, our friendships. He's Lord over everything. The fact of the matter is we all have these flasks because we all pour ourselves out before something or someone that is more important than anything else. This is the thing, the person we give ourselves to. It could be your job, your marriage, your, your children, it could be a dream, an ideal. It could be a, a sin habit. Whatever it is that preoccupies you more than anything else, that's what we pour our flasks out before. And Jesus accepts what she does, even though Simon does what religious folks do best. He passes judgment. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, this man were a prophet. He'd know who's touching him, what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Do you ever like to go to the grocery on the weekend when they have samples? Love it. Nothing like Sam's Club in December. All the horses doovers that are everywhere, you know. I mean, hors d'oeuvres. Uh, you know, I go there for lunch, you know. Uh, poor guy, you know, so I go to, I go to lunch. Time. And you know what happens? I don't intend to buy anything, you know. I just go have a heyday eating, you know. And what does it do? It takes the edge off. And I fear there are a lot of church people that do the same thing on Sunday. They come and sample a little bit. Just take the edge off the spiritual hunger we experience. If I get a little bit of Jesus to make me feel better, to feel not as guilty as I did when I walked in, to somehow salve my distance from him. It's so easy to do it, isn't it? It's so easy just to sample him and think that I've been nourished. And there's been no nourishment at all. And so, here is Simon. You know, he's... Uh, it's Simon's problem, of course. He's sampling Jesus. He's interviewing Jesus. I wonder if he has something to offer me, Simon might have thought. I wonder if it would be advantageous to kind of know Jesus' name, drop his name to other people, my buddies who, who know I've had him over for dinner. Um, fill out these forms, Jesus. Fill them out in triplicate. So we'll see if you make it to the next round. A lot of people treat Jesus that way. Jesus isn't somebody you interview for master and Lord. You sample to see if he's tasty enough for you. He calls for our whole being to be laid out. 
that we become vulnerable before him and we say, God, here I am with all my junk, with all my sins, with all my blackness, with all my immorality, with all my thoughtlessness, my self-absorption, here I am. And Simon's verdict was no true Messiah would allow a woman like this to touch him. So the challenge, of course, is for all of us is the acceptance of Jesus' teaching. Jesus knows both these people extremely well, better than they know. And so he tells a story, verse 42. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, another 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And this is my problem as a believer for years. This is how I live. This is God's grace. This is where I need to be. And all my goodness, I get right there. Jesus, would you complete the the trip for me? I need your grace right here. And that was ridiculous. Because as I've grown in the Lord, what I've recognized is through and through who I am. I am spoiled goods. From the inside out, there's not one area of my life that is perfectly pure and holy through and through. I need Jesus' grace from the cross to absolutely consume me and infiltrate every part of my being. Are you here just to let Jesus make up the difference or make you a little bit better, put a stamp of approval, nice job, and feel good about yourself? Friends, we have to be broken people. We have to be vulnerable people before him. Simon appears so indifferent, you know, "Ah, I suppose the one who forgave more. And this judgment of Simon was correct. And then Jesus says those words to him. You know, Simon, when I came to your house, you weren't the one who saw, told your servant to wash my feet. You weren't the one who anointed my head with a little oil. You weren't the one who kissed me. That was the usual thing to do with the guest of honor in that day and time. But this woman did. She hasn't stopped kissing me. She hasn't, she hasn't stopped loving me since I, I came into this place. She's my true host, not you. John Ortberg writes this about this scene. There's a great sin defiling this room, but it's not the sin Simon thinks. It's the sin of lips that won't kiss and knees that won't bend and eyes that will not weep and hands that will not serve and perfume that will never leave the jar. It's the sin of a heart heart that will not break, a life that will not change, a soul that will not love. She needs grace for a heart that is broken. He needs grace for a heart that is hard. Why are you here today? To take the edge off? To salve your conscience? Saturday night didn't look so good being a follower of Jesus? Sample, feel better, less guilty. The only appropriate way to approach him every day of our lives is with thanksgiving and praise and brokenness and honor and glory and with total vulnerability of our lives open before him. The only way. And you know what helps us get there, friends? is one another. It's a community of people. Not everybody. I wouldn't trust you with every part of me. I wouldn't trust all of you. But a few of you I have. And there's so much healing that comes with that. Mr. Rogers, you remember, every day would say, you've made this day a special day just by being you. There's no person in the whole world 
just like you. I like you just the way you are. He said in an interview, I think everybody longs to be loved and longs to know that he or she is lovable. Of course, his worldview and people view is shaped by his Christian faith. It aligns with 1 John 4.10 that says, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And you remember he began his show, how? How'd he start? Hi, neighbor. Hi, neighbor. Yeah. He spoke at a graduation service at Middlebury College, and he said, when we look for what's best in the person that we happen to be with at the moment, we're doing what God does. So in appreciating our neighbor, we're participating in something truly sacred. Brothers and sisters, we are never going to welcome people into the kingdom of God, not even our next door neighbor, until we learn to accept them as Jesus accepts them. Can we grow in that? Will you join me in learning to simply accept people and let them know how loved they are? Stand and worship.